Okay, if you haven't noticed, we're getting to the end of our course at 11 of Liturgy. Today we are on the 15th session of 11 of Liturgy. We're on the post-communion Thanksgiving and the Gloria in Excelsis. We're right down to the end, which is a good thing because we're going to be uh, hitting Lent here soon. And what I've got scheduled for us essentially before Lent begins is we'll conclude the leaven of liturgy, we'll end with the benediction, we'll have a, a sort of a cleanup class, and then one further class about basically uh, some liturgical changes we're going to make at St. George, which are small, but you'll, they're, they're not controversial or anything. We'll talk about uh, liturgy in general before Lent starts, when a couple changes will occur during Lent. During Lent, we'll do a course on the conscience. Uh, what's the difference between a lax conscience, a well-formed conscience, and a scrupulous conscience? All those questions of conscience during the, the season of Lent. And following that, we're going to do round, I want to say four by now, since I've started at St. George, of Answers for Anglicans, which is you submit questions, as many questions as you can think of, that take longer than two minutes to answer, but, uh, are, but are, they require more of an explanation than just, you know, when was the first Book of Common Prayer? 1549, end. Uh, uh, longer than that, but, but uh, shorter than an hour-long conversation. Uh, so th- that will be answers for Anglicans. I'll be compiling all of your questions over the next couple months, ordering them out into a syllabus, and then after Easter we'll, we'll tackle all of that until the summertime. But now we're on the 11 of Liturgy, session 15, and we're ready to go. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, Enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Eucharist at the Eucharist. Okay, so what does Eucharist mean? Thanksgiving. We get down to the very end of the Holy Communion, and we have a Thanksgiving prayer. How fitting We're on page 83 of the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, And so when we're giving Eucharist at the Eucharist, we should recognize that until the 4th century, the deacon would dismiss worshipers immediately after the communion. And there was no thanksgiving, and it was on your way, on your way. There could be a bunch of reasons for that. Number one was, until the 4th century, much of the church was under persecution. And once they got to the most important part of the service, it was time to go home. And, uh, and so people would scoot along right after <coughs> communion. But as you see here, a well-established church uh, in a safe society, here is a man ducking out. Okay. Uh, in some churches, people still dash for the parking lot right after they receive communion. I don't know if you've ever been in a church where there's a bit of an exodus after the communion. Uh, they don't want to hear the rest of the liturgy because the, the football game is on or my Doritos are getting stale or it used to be there's a roast in the oven. Does anyone do that anymore? Have a roast in the oven? <laughs> 
But, uh, sure. sure, yeah, somebody does, I'm sure of it. But, uh, yeah, in, in some churches, people still dash for the door uh, right after the communion. But in the fourth century, you notice uh, after Constantine uh, has his influence in the church, the church, first of all, becomes legal and then is, is truly endorsed by the Romans in the fourth century. There's more of a freedom to linger in the church and to establish and uh, sort of create flourishes in our liturgy. Here we have a Thanksgiving prayer that's added. Uh, until the Book of Common Prayer, that Thanksgiving prayer varied with the season. So at the end of every service or right after the communion, there would be something like a collect that would match the day or the season. In the missals, those prayers, post-communion prayers still exist. And in some traditional Anglican churches, you will hear a post-communion prayer that's not the Thanksgiving. It's another prayer that matches the feast of the day or the season. Uh, A lot of clergy, you'll notice at the beginning of the service, if we've got a collect for the day and a collect for the season, that's two. Post-communion prayers, they'll always match the original collect. So there'll be two post-communion prayers to match the two pre-communion collects. We don't do that here per se uh, on Sunday mornings, but uh, I'm just telling you, if you enter a, a traditional Anglican church and you hear more prayers than you're used to, that's where it's coming from. It's coming from the Missal tradition. Uh, and it's actually kind of neat. It's a little bit of a, a sandwich or a, or a mirror in the liturgy. You, you're reminded of the season. You're reminded of the day. But this Thanksgiving prayer that we have in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, Cranmer composed, and we now uh, it is not variable with the seasons. It's used at the close of all communion services. And luckily at St. George, we don't have an easy way for you to duck out after. Well, you do, actually. You, you could take communion and go right to the parking lot, but we can all see you driving off. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, some, that some people say, oh, we should have stained glass windows. No, no, I don't think so. I think we should see. Uh, so the great Thanksgiving. After receiving the Eucharist, here is a prayer of Thanksgiving that spans the full range of sacramental significance. One commentator uh, on the Book of Common Prayer, Massey Shepherd, in the 50s, I think, wrote this. This prayer, it gathers up all the varied meanings of Holy Communion, thanksgiving, mystery, grace, incorporation into Christ, fellowship in the church, anticipation of the kingdom of God. This is a great thanksgiving at the end of the Eucharist. And so we'll go through the wording of uh, of this great thanksgiving here. We say, Almighty and ever-living God, we most heartily thank Thee, for that Thou dost, and then the list begins. Uh, you notice that we're not listing now our requests. We're listing things that we're thankful for. For that Thou dost vouchsafe to feed us, who have, in past tense, we have now duly received these holy mysteries with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In the Holy Communion, in the Holy Eucharist, we have received unto ourselves what the Orthodox Church and the early church would call a mystery. Uh, In the Latin church, it was called a sacrament, and there's a whole uh, discussion about the history of that word. But a mystery is essentially, uh, it it is a 
a truth that has been revealed to us for which there is not a, a full and I will say comprehensible explanation. By comprehensible, the original meaning of that is to be able to reach your arms around it and touch on the other side. You can't reach around this sacrament and fully understand it, touch on the other side, for somehow this bread is the body of Christ. Somehow this wine is the blood of Christ. Um, that is a mystery. But he has vouchsafed to feed us, and we're thankful that we have duly received these holy mysteries, the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. But we also are grateful for the grace of God and all the ands here, and dost assure us thereby of thy favor and goodness towards us. If that isn't good enough right there, to think of the Heavenly Father having favor towards us, you know, uh, it, it's possible in your Christian life, or a lot of people in their lives, the only time they think about God is when they're pretty sure they did something really wrong. And they feel very condemned about it and need to get it straightened out, need to get right with God, or as we used to say in the evangelical church, do business with God. <laughs> you got to get right with God. How about at the very end of this to realize you are right with God and that he has shown his favor and goodness towards you? If there's anything to be thankful about, that's it. But there's more. And, and speaking of incorporation into the body of Christ and fellowship, and that we are very members and corporate in the mystical body of thy Son, which is the blessed company of all faithful people. It's not just this parish. It's not just the person sitting next to you or the people that you like. It's not even just the people you like. It's the people you don't like. You're also incorporated into a mystical body of those people, all uh, who are in the company of, of Christ in the mystical body of his Son. And it's not only the present reality, it's a future reality, anticipation, and are also heirs through hope of thy everlasting kingdom. Uh, and, and we're looking both in this kingdom that is now and in the kingdom that is not yet. It is coming we're a member of this kingdom, and we're looking forward to, we're anticipating a fullness of that kingdom as uh, very similar to what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, and we are taught to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And how is all this happening? By the merits of my wonderful deeds this week? No, uh, by the merits of someone else who did acts of super arrogation, which have been applied to me, so that uh, monks that are doing too much good uh, I can borrow some of their good and it's applied to me. No, we say by the merits of his most precious death and passion, whatever suffering that you're going through, it may be redemptive to you, but it's redemptive because of his redemptive suffering. You associate your suffering to his and now it's not wasted. Now your suffering can be associated with his and your, uh, your passion and death can be fully uh, absorbed into his passion and death, which is fine, because what comes next after passion and death of Christ is res resurrection and ascension. And if you want that for you, then you might as well walk with him through passion and death too. Um, but nevertheless, by the merits of his most precious death and passion. And yes, there, even in the Thanksgiving, we can throw a request in. We have a request. But it's not for goodies. Uh, 
We have one last request. And we humbly beseech thee, O Heavenly Father, so to assist us with thy grace and acknowledgement that if the next thing is going to happen, it's not going to be by our own uh, great effort, that we may continue in that holy fellowship and do all such good works as thou hast prepared for us to walk in. The word there is assist, which means uh, though God may take the primary role, there is going to be some cooperation required. Uh, We don't pray that he would force us with his grace. We don't pray that he would uh, reduce us to automatons and simply by remote control make us do good works. That he would assist us with his grace. It is a uh, cooperation in, in our theology, and it's incorporated into our prayers. Assist us with thy grace that we may continue in that holy, holy fellowship and do all such good works as thou hast prepared for us to walk in. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Ghost be all honor and glory, world without end. Amen. The great thanksgiving and a little request. Uh, that is... Um, quintessential, or it is, uh, you could say quintessential to the Book of Common Prayer at the close of that liturgy. But if you read the liturgy of St. James from the early centuries of what is now called the Eastern Orthodox Church, you find something pretty similar. Um, Thomas Cranber uh, modeled his prayer on uh, a, a, a liturgical work called the the consultations, Herman's consultations, but he also used the liturgy of the Eastern Church. See if this sounds familiar. The liturgy of St. James. We render thanks to you, Christ our God, that you have made us worthy to partake of your body and blood for the remission of sins and for life everlasting. We pray you in your goodness and love, keep us without condemnation. We render thanks to you, the Savior and God of all, for all the good things you've given us, and for the participation of your holy and pure mysteries. Sounds very familiar. Glory to you, glory to you, glory to you, O Christ the King, only begotten, word of the Father, that you have counted us, your sinful, unworthy servants, worthy to enjoy your pure mysteries for the remission of sins and for life everlasting. Glory to you. This is an existence for well over a thousand years before Thomas Cranmer uh, decides to compose the Great Thanksgiving. And lo and behold, there's no reason to recreate the wheel. We've got some pretty good prayers in the church already. Uh, So we find there uh, some symmetry with other liturgies of the day and of, of the history of the church. And so we're ready to turn to the Gloria. But first of all, any any questions about the Thanksgiving before we go? Glory. We're not going to go right to the glory. We've got some rubrics. talks about being incorporated in mm-hmm. the body of Christ. Is that mainly accomplished by our worldly receiving his body and blood? The incorporate the primary incorporation of the Christian into Christ occurs at baptism. Right? Um, what what we're instructed in the scriptures and in the church is that it doesn't begin and end in baptism. Incorporation, you think about the word corporate, if you're a uh, uh, Anyway, it means in, to be brought into the body of that initiation in the baptism is an initiation into the body of Christ. It's an incorporation. 
But uh, like St. Paul says to the Romans uh, in the last few chapters of that book, um, don't get so uh, confident of your incorporation into Christ that you can basically uh, behave any way you want to. Because just as you've been grafted in, that your branch can also be broken off. So what I, what I speak about it like is, uh, is this. A cherry branch, well, this is like the vine and the branch, right? So a cherry branch is 100% cherry all the way through. Every single molecule of that branch is cherry. And when it's connected to the cherry tree, it will bear fruit and leaves and go through all seasons and all manner of uh, fruitfulness. But when you break that cherry branch off and separate it from the source of its life, it will die. 100% cherry, still cherry, dead separated from the life, uh, from the source of life. So is it possible for you to be uh, incorporated into the body of Christ and starve that life in you? As St. Paul says, quench the Holy Spirit. Kill it, wring it out, reject it, and die. Yes, that's an Anglican position, that's a Catholic position. Um, but that... Uh, that those sacramental, what you say, uh, graces of the church that the Lord gives to us are meant to feed and to nourish. Um, there's no need to fear if you're uh, under the the Lord's wing. If you if you're under the shepherd's staff, whom will you fear? Uh, it's when you wander from the shepherd and intentionally starve yourself. Now you've got something to be afraid of. The shepherd is far. That's bad. So that's a long answer to a quick question. But um, anyhow, we're going to turn to the rubrics here real quick. They're not read in your book, but the rubrics nevertheless. Um, we're switching from the, the, uh, the communion to the Gloria, but we're going to point out there are a couple of rubrics which are interesting and not followed. <laughs> After the administration of the sacrament, rubrics prior instruct clergy on what to do if they run out. We talked about this a little bit earlier. Uh, what to do if you run out of the sacrament. Um, the rubrics say you need to go back to this point in the liturgy, reconsecrate, not reconsecrate, consecrate again, and then administer the remainder. I've never had to do it. There may come some day when something happens, and I hate to even suggest it, but if the chalice were to have tragically spilled, we would start the service again at the consecration and we would consecrate a new chalice and, and y'all would just have to be patient. That's all. Um, but in 1574, a priest in England was prosecuted, arrested and prosecuted for administering unconsecrated elements. There is no such uh, authority to arrest me, but I would count on you to turn me into the bishop and I would be, a, I'd be duly chastised in some ecclesiastical court. That is a big no-no. Uh, but uh, when the chalice was restored to the people at the, at the English Reformation, it was decided that the people should receive from the chalice also. Chalices for centuries had been made really tiny, really small, because only the clergy were going to, to receive. So uh, clergy were also not very good at eyeballing a congregation and figuring out how much... Uh, one needed to be consecrated to administer to everyone. 
And so they had these tiny little chalices and this little <laughs> and, a, and a, a bad estimation. It was possible that you were going to need a rubric to, re, to re-consecrate uh, chalices because Father So-and-so didn't do it right. Um, so that's why these rubrics are present. But then there's a strange one. When all have communicated, the priest shall return to the Lord's table and reverently place upon it what remaineth of the consecrated elements, covering the same with a fair linen cloth. I bet you've never seen that done. And if any of the consecrated bread and wine, this is at the end of the liturgy, remain after the communion, it shall not be carried out of the church. Obviously, they're addressing something that hasn't happened in a long time. Carried out of the church. But the minister shall immediately after the blessing reverently eat and drink the same. The blessing is the benediction at the end of the service. I'll bet you've never seen that done. Anybody seen that done? What's that? Well, at the end of communion, the, the priest places all the remainder on the altar. They do the whole service. And after the blessing, they stand at the altar and receive a bunch more. You've seen that? They did it in the same thing. I did it. I did it. Oh, really? And you didn't reserve any. You didn't reserve any. There was no tabernacle, no ombre. Was it Maundy Thursday? Because that, okay, that, there would be one day of the year that, that would make the most sense. But yes, well, I was an actual lay of the Episcopal Church using the 1928 Book of Common Prayer. I used to overestimate. Yeah. I used to stuff my mouth with the bread. <laughs> okay. Well, that's interesting. I'll, I will say, well, then, uh, I've never seen it done. And, uh, but that, that, that is what the rubric says. What's that? You're not old enough. Oh, that may be it, yeah. <laughs> Well, this rubric is pretty old, but in our churches, we don't do it. So anyway, yeah, they didn't have reserved sacrament. Interesting. Well, that's a that's a conversation there. But uh, uh, here's here's further conversation. So I, I don't know if you've ever heard of arping and guffing. <laughs> Probably never heard that. Arping. OK, uh, nearly all Anglican churches arp which is follow the Roman tradition of consuming or reserving the sacrament directly after communion received. Ablutions in the Roman position, that's what it's called, arping. Um, Most traditional Anglican churches do that. Um, And that is what I'm I'm accustomed to. I've never seen it actually done the other way, follow those rubrics precisely. But apparently uh, I am alone in that. The Gloria, when introduced to the Holy Communion liturgy in the 6th century, was at the front of the service and for most of church history. Cranmer moved it to the end in 1552. That's the second Book of Common Prayer, which is uh, uh, considered by some a terrible thing. Uh, But to guff is to return the Gloria up front. So if you've ever been to a church that does the Gloria at the beginning, you're at a guffing church, okay? (laughs) So you may go to a church that arps and guffs. And and, uh, you've never heard those terms before. That's sort of a clergy thing, but... But anyway, we are not a guff church. uh, We are arpers and not guffers at St. George. Uh, But here here is the... a tradition struggle. Which tradition should you follow? Traditionalists prefer to move the Gloria back to the front because as some say, it's always been like that before the Book of Common Prayer. Everybody did it that way. Others believe that though the Gloria at the end is not the original position, the rationale makes more sense at the end of the communion liturgy and that the uh, Anglican innovation was actually an improvement. 
And so we fight, 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 fight. Like uh, Pacquiao and, oh, help me. The boxer. I can't think of his name. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, Floyd Merriweather. That's right. Floyd Merriweather and, and Manny Pacquiao. The big super fight. I'm introducing, I'm introducing a liturgical fight to you that you've never, that you've never heard of. Anyway, uh, if, you, if you're interested in, in this, you can read the Annotated Book of Common Prayer being an historical ritual and theological commentary in the devotional system of the Church of England. If you want to, you can read that, or you can trust me. Trust me that he says, Bold as was the change thus made by the revisers of 1552, there is so striking an appropriateness in the present position of the Gloria in Excelsis, Excelsis, that uh, as an act of Eucharistic adoration, that there is reason to rejoice at the alteration rather than regret it. And it may be said that there is no liturgy in the world which has so solemn and yet so magnificent a conclusion as our own, the big uh, Gloria, and we have with our great Amen. Now you can go have your pot roast, okay? <laughs> you got to get that Amen in there, and then a blessing, and now you can go. But yeah, that, so that's a, a fight. You may see, you may visit one of our churches and find the glory is up front. It's not a travesty. And the fact that we have the glory in the back is not a travesty. It's a, it's a, it's a traditional boxing match. Um, but we're on to the Gloria now. And it has been called the angelic hymn. You can probably guess why. Because the first words of the angelic hymn, Glory be to God on high and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men, were uttered by angels. We have taken into our mouths the words of the uh, woman of Tyre and Sidon, who said, even the, the dogs take up the crumbs from under thy table. We've taken up the words of the centurion who said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only and my soul shall be healed. And now we take the words of the angels as our own. Glory be to God on high and on earth. Peace, goodwill towards men. Uh, along with the Te Deum of morning prayer, Te Deum Laudamus, uh, these are the only two canticles in the Book of Common Prayer that are not taken directly from some portion of scripture. They were composed by the church in the at least the sub-apostolic period. Athanasius, fourth century, quotes the Gloria and instructs it to be used as a morning hymn, which probably means it was already being used as a morning hymn. St. Chrysostom also, fourth century, uh, frequently mentions it in the same context, morning hymn, uh, the Gloria and the Te Deum. Composition has been attributed to Polycarp, which is first century, uh, beginning of second century, or Telesophorus, second century. This is a very, very, very early liturgical prayer, this Gloria that we end our service with. Uh, It is a great doxology. Glory be to God on high and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. The reason that sounds familiar is that it's taken straight from Luke chapter 2. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. It is an angelic hymn. But if you've ever read the Te Deum Laudamus, you'll know that the Gloria and the Te Deum sort of parallel after, this poor, after that original angelic statement there's a bit of uh, 
rapid-fire exaltation sort of uh, portion. In the one, we say, we praise thee, we bless thee, we worship thee, we glorify thee, we give thanks to thee for thy great glory, O Lord God, heavenly King, God the Father Almighty. In another, uh, Te Deum, we say, We praise thee, O God, we acknowledge thee to be the Lord. All the earth doth worship thee, the Father everlasting. The Te Deum and the Gloria are running in tandem. Actually, one of the early ideas about this uh, was that it was in the 4th century divided. The Te Deum and and the Gloria used to be the same hymn in the church. And it was divided, the Gloria to be used uh, in one portion of liturgy and the Te Deum as the morning hymn uh, later by Hilary of Poitiers. That's one of the notions. But if you really look at what's coming next in the Gloria, you find that not only is the Te Deum and the Gloria uh, running parallel, but the Te Deum, I mean the Gloria... In this next section, sounds a lot like the Kyrie Eleison and the Agnus Dei together, like a mashup. Okay, O Lord, the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, O Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Thou that takest away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. Thou that sittest at the right hand of the Father, have mercy upon us. Those uh, have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us. That is the Kyrie Eleison, Lord, have mercy upon us. Uh, They're so similar that originally, or not originally, in one of the books of common prayer, Thomas Cranmer thought it was redundant to have the Gloria and the Kyrie Eleison. So he put another have mercy upon us into the Gloria, so the Gloria actually read as it does now with another have mercy upon us and then the, the Kyrie went away. And everybody thought that was a terrible idea. So <laughs> the Gloria went back to the original and the, the, uh, the Kyrie reappeared. But also, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, that takest away the sins of the world. Thou that takest away the sins of the world. This is Agnes Day, Agnes Day, Agnes Day, Lamb of God that takest away the sins of the world. Have mercy upon us. Thou that takest away the sins of the world. So this, this middle section is, is, uh, is some other early prayers all put together. So in case you missed the Kyrie or the Agnes Day, um, here it is. This is probably some of the rationale for why it, it could go at the beginning because it's, it's echoing the Kyrie, nevertheless. The great doxology at the end. For thou only art holy, thou only art the Lord, Thou only, O Christ, with the Holy Ghost, art most high in the glory of God the Father. Amen. The angelic hymn, in the end, is a Trinitarian exclamation. You see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost appear in this last section. Uh, many portions, this is an opinion, many portions of the liturgy could be removed or changed, but the Gloria should be preserved for our own good. It's in a good spot wherever you place it, at the beginning or at the end. But this is one of the oldest prayers of the church, and it is a good one. That's the Gloria.
Um, any, we've got a little bit of time, actually. So any questions about the Thanksgiving, about those rubrics, which I thought were utterly uh, uh, ignored, but apparently in some places it when has been observed? Uh, 1977. See? I was, this is 1968. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, any thoughts about... Yes, please, Jack. What, what's, the, what's your proper use of the Omri? That, All right. Um, right. So, in terms of the, the the Eucharist, so two things. First of all, uh, a, a silly one. When this when the sacrament is reserved, if the sacrament is reserved off to the side, it's called an ombre. When it's reserved on the altar, it's called a tabernacle. So that's called a tabernacle where uh, the sacrament is reserved. There are several reasons for the reservation. Uh, number one is when I do a hospital visit or I visit someone at home and there isn't time to do the whole service. In fact, most of the time when I visit people, I bring with me pre-consecrated elements and usually just the host, remembering that if you receive the body or the blood, you've received all of Christ. You don't, uh, you know, you're not being neglected. Uh, so I use that for hospital visits and home visits. But the other reason is that if ever there was a place for the presence of Christ to be, it would be in that area right there. Uh, the, within the altar rail is called the sanctuary. So that, that space has been set aside for one reason, uh, uh, one reason only, the presence of Christ, the worship of God, the administration of the sacraments. Uh, you can easily find... Uh, in the Articles of Religion, a place where you'd say, aha, we're not supposed to be doing that, because it says in the Articles of Religion that the sacrament is not to be, what is the listing? Something like uh, held aloft, gazed upon, or reserved. Something to that, to that effect. Uh, and we have to remind ourselves when we're reading this in the 21st century that this was written in the 16th century when they were addressing items of the 16th century that were uh, germane at the time. And one of those was not administering the sacrament or the people not uh, offering or not coming forward to receive the sacrament. They would sit in the back of the church and watch and then leave and not go forward to receive. Part of the, the urging of the Reformation was that people would actually receive the sacrament and participate. It had become something of a spectator sport to go to church, to have your private devotions, to watch the clergy, and then leave. The great urging of the Reformation was to to shorten this clerical divide between the clergy and the laity and actually administer the sacraments. And you could understand them saying, it's not meant to be just looked at. It's not meant to be paraded around, which is uh, a reference to Corpus Christi. It was a, a practice of, of parading the, the, uh, the sacrament about or to be reserved for another service for, for the clergy or something like that. What we're doing is everything at St. George. We're keeping the sacramental presence of Christ in the place in which we worship. If you were to come partway through the week, um, you, would, you would know because the, sac, uh, the, 
The sanctuary candle is lit. You will know that the sacramental presence of Christ is in the room. It's a good place for you to pray. It's a good place for you to contemplate. Um, You would also know that the priest is ready at, at the drop of a hat to run to the hospital in your last moment and administer the sacrament to you if you can receive it. Um, and that the fact that each time we, we uh, have a Eucharistic service, very few people who are uh, meant to receive are not receiving, very few. And it actually has nothing to do with, with anyone trying to withhold uh, or anything like that. Um, so we're, we're kind of firing on all cylinders, I believe. But uh, does that answer your question? Or? Okay. Any other questions about the... Yes, please. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, the our our position is that you could lose your salvation. Uh, that's that's flat out stated by me right now. <laughs> but I think it's also flat out stated by the New Testament. If you just read what Saint Paul says, Saint Paul seems to indicate that he himself considers himself possible uh, a possible candidate for. Uh, for losing his salvation when, when he says, uh, I can't think of the exact verbiage, but if you know what I mean, uh, something like, if I myself should be cast away after, you know, after his life of ministry, he also exclaims to the Galatians, he's afraid he might have wasted all of his time with them. And he's also um, speaking to the Corinthians uh, in, in great exasperation for their wanderings and also um, says to them about receiving unworthily that they may eat and drink to their own condemnation. Now, I don't know what kind of condemnation we want to justify. St. Paul is saying condemnation, but not real condemnation. Like many condemnation. No. The only person who's going to receive the body and blood of Christ in the first century church is going to be a baptized Christian. And he says it's possible for you to eat and drink to your own condemnation. And to me, you get wrapped up in, the, in, the, in systematic theology. And in order to justify a systematic theology, you you have to ignore what the scripture clearly says. And that's what I'm saying here is while it's, while the scriptures also in other places speak about you, about us being predestined from the foundation of the world and, and, and such, uh, the best way to, um, handle a paradox of the scripture where you've got two horns of a dilemma is not to pick one. It's to take both. Somehow, we've been predestined from the foundation of the world, and it's important what you do. Jesus even says it. Uh, well, anytime you're being urged uh, after, like, well, let's just say it this way. Most of St. Paul's letters, the first portion of the letter is theological. And he's saying, you are uh, built into a structure of which Christ is the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets are the foundation, you are being built up into a habitation of God. 
second half of the epistle. Now, how should you then live? Well, if these things are true, then you have got to stop doing, you know, fill in the blank. If it doesn't matter what you do because you've been, you know, saved from the foundation of the world, why would he bother giving you all these uh, instructions now? And even say, if you don't, you may eat and drink condemnation to yourself. I may have wasted my time with you. There seems to be... uh, um, there seems to be what, what I would say in the New Testament is a theology of cooperation. We don't, we don't say that it's all up to you. We say that the Lord begins a good work in you, but it's up to you to cooperate with him. It's possible to quench the Holy Spirit. Um, it's, a, it's a cooperative effort. And this is the difference, theologically speaking, between what they call monergism and synergism. So monergism is there's one power. Only the Lord decides. He decides everything. You, you feel like you're acting, but you're not really. Synergism is he begins to work and you better cooperate with him. <laughs> that's that's uh, synergism. That, that is a big conversation, especially of the 16th century and ever since. Um, and a great struggle of Calvinists everywhere to uh, participate in, uh, in a church that, that believes what we believe. So, anyway, that's, that's the story. And Janet? Isn't that the purpose of the exhortations, to remind us of this? Yeah, interestingly enough, the exhortation it essentially comes from St. Paul. St. Paul says, while it's possible for you to eat and drink and, and receive great benefit, it's also possible for you to receive uh, condemnation to yourself. That, that exhortation used to be read at the beginning of every single Eucharist. And when was that done? When the Book of Common Prayer first came out. Because here we are, uh, the sacrament had been essentially withheld from people. Now you're being invited. But now that you're being invited, let me exhort you. Like with the words of St. Paul, I exhort you. And, and through the centuries, the exhortation has become repeated less and less. And now the rubric says, say it three times in a year. It's a really long exhortation. So we don't do it every week. But what's that? The second one, Athanasius, is very long. The first one oh, that, those are the creeds. That's a creed. Yeah, the, the Athanasian creed. But the exhortations come, you know, uh, it's the next page, page 85. Um, uh, Joe. The way I understand the liturgy, you have the, the, the examination and confession before the, exactly. the feast right. and, and the Thanksgiving. So those exhortations are the things that are saying, are you sure? Have you thoroughly examined? Yeah, let's go with the prodigal son, okay? Um, the father is longing for the prodigal son to come home. He doesn't go out and check every pigsty. This son ran away. He wanted to be gone. What uh, causes the father to run out to him is that uh, this young man got himself, uh, got, let's say, responded to the prompting in his mind saying, why am I, when all of my father's servants are so well fed, why am I lying in a pigsty I should come home to my father. Okay, so there's, uh, the Lord is giving us in this story of the prodigal son, a story of a cooperation. Okay, so uh, 
the, the church has always said that, that the, the energy or the beginning of the work is not you. The beginning is the Lord. But you have to respond to that work. Um, if you want to say that you're the first one to, to put the effort in, you are now a Pelagian. And that is a heresy. So we don't say that. Uh, you don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The Lord begins a work in you. And it's uh, uh, the fact that you woke up today to your alarm or your cell phone or whatever, got dressed and came here, that you're sitting in this room right now, shows that you're responding to his call to you because his call goes out every Sunday morning at 11 or 8.30. It says, come and be fed. And if you say, eh, you know, bowling's on. Who watches bowling? <laughs> Somebody watches bowling. I watch bowling sometimes. Uh, you watch that on Sunday afternoon. But anyway, you, you're responding already in coming to, to the church. And when you come to the church and you work through the liturgy, we're, we're ironing through this one issue at a time. He all, we start, I got to stop, but we start with saying he already knows all of your stuff. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and whatever you are pretending is over. And then you say, Lord, have mercy upon us. And he says, okay. And then, he, and then we hear from the epistle, we hear from the gospel, we hear the word expounded, and then we declare what we believe in the creed. And then we pray for the whole state, the state of, uh, the whole state of Christ's church, and we confess our sins, we receive absolution, we come and we're fed, and then we sing Gloria, and we go on our way, rejoicing. That's, uh, if you are a cow in a field and there's a well, you will gravitate to the well unless you want to die. This is the well. And you're not a cow, you're a sheep, right? Uh, according to Christ. So there's, there's food right here. We've got to stop now. The end. Until next week. Oh, no, yeah. yeah.